Good morning. Uh, my name is Ethan Brown. Uh, my wife, Amanda, and I have had the unique privilege of getting to meet many of you and experiencing your hospitality already. Uh, we just moved to Champaign-Urbana a few weeks ago, and God has called me to uh, be a campus minister at the University of Illinois with Reformed University Fellowship, but our family will be worshiping here and connected to this community, and we're so glad that, that God has called us to this place. Well, our sermon text for this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, and this passage records a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus, but also a, a central moment in the story of God's rescue of his people. It records what is often called the ascension of Jesus, the moment when our Lord Jesus, after he had died and risen from the dead, he ascended bodily into heaven. This moment marks the end of Jesus's earthly ministry and the beginning of his heavenly ministry for us. And I believe that from the Bible's perspective, the ascension is really important. And I also have a hunch that we probably don't think about it quite as much as we do about other important events in Jesus's life, like his death and resurrection. And that's why this sermon is actually the first in a series that I'll be periodically preaching over the next several months on the ascension. And it's not necessarily going to say all the different things we could say about the ascension or a theology of the ascension, but we'll be looking at different passages in the scriptures that give us a different angle on this important event and the difference that it makes in our lives. So I hope you will stay tuned going forward. Now, I don't assume that everyone in this room is a Christian, and if you're not, I'm really glad you're here. I hope that you'll experience the hospitality and welcome that my family has experienced here, and I'd love to get to know you and hear your story and maybe grab coffee with you later this week. But whether you're a Christian or not, if you've been around God's people for some amount of time or around God's word, then I bet you probably could venture a guess at the difference that the death of Jesus has in your life. Even if you don't believe it's true, you could probably say something like, well, I've heard that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But I also bet it, it would be harder for us to come up with an answer. What difference does the ascension make in our lives? So as we turn now to God's word in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, I want us to have that question on our minds. What difference did the ascension make for the earliest disciples that we're going to read about, but also maybe more pressingly, what difference does it make for you and me today? This is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Please listen carefully because this is God's word. So when they had come together, they asked him, that's Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, 
Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Please pray with me. Oh, Jesus, we long uh, to see with eyes of faith uh, you lifted up into the heavenly places. We long to respond to this word that you have for us today in a way that would bring you glory. And so I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Has there ever been a time in your life when you thought, am I in heaven? About a year ago, Amanda and Judah and I, Ellis, our sweet daughter, was not around yet. We were on our way uh, to Grandfather Mountain in North Carolina with a group of college friends. Now, I know it's pretty flat around here, but I assume you all have at least heard of a mountain. It's a (laughs) rising stone structure in the sky, and uh, we are really excited for this trip with college friends, but, you know, I kind of assumed that we we were, I knew we were going to stay in a cabin, but I assumed that we were going to stay in kind of a small, dinky, rustic, maybe even frontier-style cabin. But I got the first hint that that initial impression was wrong when my friend told us that we were actually going to stay in a country club. Now, I didn't know that there were country clubs in mountains, but I, I, I feel like I started to have a, a more clear picture of our living arrangements for the weekend, but I, I still did not totally expect what we had coming. So we get to this country club shortly before sunset, and almost immediately my jaw is dropped. Because as we're driving up the winding roads, I look out to the left and see an immaculately landscaped golf course. And I look out to the right and I see a beautiful private lake. And, And here I am, I didn't know that golf courses and mountains could even go together. But as, as we actually got closer to the cabin that we were staying at for the weekend, my, my jaw kept dropping further because when you looked at the mountain from a distance, all the cabins were built very thoughtfully in a way that you actually couldn't see the cabins from a distance. But once you got past the lush golf course and the private lake and the tennis courts and you got up to these cabins, you realized that each of them was actually a mansion that each of them was unique from one another, these beautiful homes. So you might not be surprised at this point that I was kind of feeling like, man, am I in heaven? Well, we finally make it to our destination, and I begin to unload our belongings from the trunk, and I'm looking around and just basking in the glory of the situation that I'm in. But a moment later, my, my impression is shattered as I hear the shattering of glass bottles at my feet and feel a sticky liquid soak my feet and worst of all, uh, soak my precious Birkenstocks. (laughs) I don't know if y'all are a Birkenstock community or not, but they're very precious to me. And, And you see, we have these bottles in the back of our trunk and they they burst through the cardboard container and the, the glass shattered and my feet were covered. And in that moment, I knew I'm not in heaven. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you've ever had some kind of experience like that before, but if you have, 
or if you can resonate with that story, then you're actually in a good position to understand what the disciples were feeling in the passage we just read. Think about it. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus had just rose from the dead. He had conquered death. He would never die again. And the disciples are thinking, what do they say? Surely now Jesus will usher in the kingdom of heaven. But just like I was in for a rude awakening at the top of Grandfather Mountain, so the disciples were in for a rude awakening at the top of the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended into heaven. Because they weren't in heaven yet. The kingdom had come in a real way when Jesus the king showed up on the scene. But it was not yet to come in full. The disciples were being called to live in a tension between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And that's actually the tension that we are called to live in as well. And it's hard to live in that tension. So what I think God has to say to us today, he has a word for us as we seek to live in this tension. It's that because of the ascension of Jesus, you can be a faithful witness to him until he comes again. Because of the ascension, you can be a faithful witness to Jesus until he comes again and the kingdom comes in full. So to flesh this out, we're going to march through this passage in three sections. In verses 6 through 7, we'll see that because of the ascension, you can trust God even when you fail. In verse 8, we'll see that because of the ascension, you can praise God when you flourish. And finally, in verses 9 through 11, we'll see that you can serve God at all times with hope. So first, you can trust God when you fail. Acts 1, 6 through 7 is not the first time that the disciples failed in some way to understand the kingdom of God, and it wouldn't be the last time either. Uh, We don't have time to make a full survey of the many ways that the disciples goofed it up through the years of their traveling with Jesus. But think about um, maybe the example of Peter in particular. Not long before this passage, he had actually denied Jesus three times. And not long after this passage, he would go on to misunderstand the nature of God's kingdom in a big way at least in his practice, when he would refuse to eat with Gentiles. You see, when Jesus came, he came to be a blessing not only to Jews, but to Gentiles, to be the savior of the whole world. And Peter wasn't living that out. And he's the leader of the disciples, right? So I actually have, um, I think, sympathy for the disciples in this passage. I think they had good reason for being hopeful that the kingdom was coming in this story, even if they maybe had some misunderstandings about what that would look like, whether it would be some kind of political revolution or what else. But that being said, their misunderstanding demonstrates an important point and something that connects with our experience. The disciples often miss the kingdom. They misunderstand it. They fail in some way. And before we begin to kind of look down on them or feel contempt for them because of this I think if you're anything like me, we pretty quickly realize that we are in the same boat. We often fail to recognize the true nature of the kingdom. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like for you on a day-to-day basis, but I bet that there will be times in your life when you will fail to see God at work in the heart of your spouse or your children 
or your friends. That's missing the kingdom. Or there will be times when you will be so focused on the things of this world, whether it's your comforts, your reputation, your routine, your money, your career, whatever it might be, that that your focus on these things that aren't bad in themselves will cause you to miss the kingdom, to miss what God is doing in your life and in the world. There'll be times when you'll experience failures of different kinds in your service to Jesus, whether it's just because of your ignorance, which is really more the case with the disciples in this passage, or because of an outright act of rebellion against God, an act of sin. And I want to say that I know that some of you are well acquainted with your failures. Uh, You don't need me to stand up here and remind you because you already feel the weight of them. But what we all need to hear today, whether we need to be reminded of our failures or not, is that because of the ascension, Jesus tells us in his rising that he's the king on the throne and that that's true even when we fail. Look at the the verses of our king, or the the words of our king in verse 7. I think these are actually a great consolation to us in our failures, even though we might not read it that way uh, the first time we look at it. He says it's not for us to know times or seasons. That is, you know, exactly when Jesus would come back to make all things new. But these things are fixed by the Father's authority. So God has not determined to reveal the exact time to his disciples then or to us when Jesus will return. And this can be frustrating, right? Because if you're anything like me, or if you're anything like Eve, our first mother in the garden, we actually long to know all things. And if we're really honest, we we would like to know all things independently of God. But despite our initial frustration and not being told all the things that we want to know, this is actually good news. We don't have all knowledge and authority, but God does. Our God does. Not just any God, the God who has chosen to enter into a relationship with his people in the Lord Jesus. And because this God rules over all things, that means we can trust him even when we fail. When we fail, Jesus hasn't stepped off the throne. And the ascension reminds us of that fact. Because in the ascension, Jesus ascended into heaven to sit upon his throne. So practically, what does trusting God in our failures look like? Again, there are lots of right answers to that question. But I think it it might look something like fathers and mothers who are willing to confess their sin to their children. It might look like a small group, whether it's a part of this church or on campus of people that are willing to be vulnerable and honest with one another about their struggles and doubts, even when that honesty will conflict with our natural desire to constantly be propagating a positive image uh, to the watching world. It might look like a leader in the home or in the business sector or wherever it might be, choosing to take the blame for the failures of his team, but also giving away the credit when his team succeeds. It might look like having hope for the salvation of an unbelieving friend or child, even when it seems like you just blew an opportunity to show them God's love in some unique way or or to share about the gospel with them. 
Now, I grant that actually living these things out can sound kind of impossible, uh, and that's daunting. But what we need to be reminded is even though they are impossible in our own strength, even though they wouldn't be impossible if Jesus hadn't ascended into heaven, that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's ascended into heaven to sit on the throne, and because of that, you can trust God even in the middle of your failures. They don't have to ruin you or destroy you because our king is on the throne. But the ascension also shows us that we can praise God when we flourish. I want you to read verse 8 again with me so we have it on our minds. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When the disciples are denied the authority that belongs only to the Father, uh, that can sound like a discouragement. I hope you've already seen that that's not actually the case. But it's important for us to see as well that in the very same breath that Jesus denies them that authority, he grants to them the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now that word for power is connected with the ability to perform miracles throughout the book of Acts. Wondrous, supernatural deeds that testified to the watching world that the message of these apostles, that Jesus commissioned to spread the gospel to the world and even to give us the Holy Scriptures, that their message was true, that it was from God. And now, uh, we can't perform miracles like they did. Uh, At least I'm not aware of anyone in the room that can. But... The same spirit that empowered the disciples, these apostles, to perform miracles empowers us to join them in the same mission of the church. The mission to, look at what it says in the, in the scriptures, to bear witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the University of Illinois, to Champaign-Urbana, to the state of Illinois, to the ends of the earth. Just as the disciples could perform miracles by the power of the Spirit, so all of our successes, whether it's in life or in ministry, if you're a believer, it's because of God's Spirit at work in you. Now, this is important because failing to recognize the source of the power that we enjoy, the the Spirit's power at work in our lives, is actually a failure to recognize that Jesus is the King. Because he's the good King who gives us the gift of the Spirit. It's actually an act of setting up yourself as a rival king or queen whenever we feel tempted towards pride or arrogance after we experience some success in our lives. And now, I want to recognize that if you're here and you're not a Christian today, this concept might actually be one of the hang-ups that you're facing, this idea that Jesus is the king. So, Ethan, you might say, you're telling me that I have to let someone else run my life? That that someone else gets to call the shots, even on the things that I care the most about? And if we're honest, in our kind of postmodern culture, that can sound kind of oppressive. It doesn't sound like the path to freedom. But the reality is that whether you're a believer or not, the only way to experience true freedom and abundant life is to submit 
to King Jesus. And if you are a Christian, it's that daily submission to him every day that is the pathway to the abundant life that Jesus offers. We're not called to be rival kings or queens. What does our passage say? It says we're called to be a witness, someone who points others to Jesus, that directs all the praises to him, both in the words that we use, but we, isn't it true that we can often even use the right words when our hearts are really in it for ourselves or, or the actions of our lives demonstrate that we're trying to get glory for ourselves? Ask yourself, is there an area of your life that you, if, if you're really honest, want to rule over instead of Jesus? Well, let's make it a little more practical again. I think that's an important question I just asked, but I also think that in light of our passage, one of the best ways that we can live out submission to the king is by using the gifts he's given us by the spirit for his glory. Think about it. By giving us the spirit, Jesus is a little bit like Father Christmas in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know if you've read that book or seen the movie, but Father Christmas is uh, functionally Santa Claus, and he shows up to give these gifts to the Pevensey children, the, the main characters in this book. And he comes to give Peter a sword, and Susan bow and arrows, and Lucy a dagger and potion, and so on. And man, these gifts are cool. But what's significant is that these gifts are actually pointers to the different roles that these children will play in Aslan's mission to reclaim Narnia from the rule of the White Witch. And something very similar is true in our lives as well. If you trust in Jesus, the gifts that he's given you by the Spirit are a pointer. They're an indicator to the kind of role that God is calling you to play. First and most centrally in Jesus' mission to bring sinners to himself, but also over time in his mission to make all things new. So I want you to ask yourself, how has the Spirit of God gifted you? It's an important question because if we don't know our gifts, we can't use them, right? But it's also an important question because if we don't know our gifts, it's really easy to misuse them. Because I, I think the gifts, even the gifts that the Spirit gives have a, a kind of glory and a shadow. Uh, they have a bright side and a dark side. The bright side comes from God's grace, his gift. The dark side comes from our sin and our misuse of that gift. Isn't it easy to use the gifts that we've been given, not for the good of others and the glory of Christ, uh, but we can twist them to our own ends? So, we don't have time to do a full inventory of the different kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives. Uh, that'd be a good use of our time, but it's not what God's called us to today. But let's just talk about one example, and then you can think about how this dynamic gets worked out in your life. One gift that the Spirit gives is the gift of encouragement. Are you someone who's able to give specific and uplifting encouragement and, and it kind of feels like it comes naturally to you. I know that that's true for many of you because Amanda and I have been recipients of that gift. You've already been an encouragement to us. And I'm certainly not speaking about anyone in the room when I mention this next part. 
But I know, because I see it in my own heart, that it's really easy to use a gift of encouragement, not as a way to build people up and to honor God, uh, but to garner favor for ourselves. And that's what the Bible often calls flattery. Flattery is a kind of deceit. It's a social, like, judo move where you, you seem to be lifting up another person, but what you're really after is for them to kind of pat you on the back in return. So if this is you, if, if encouraging comes naturally to you, ask God to help you to see the ways you might be misusing that gift and to grow in your ability to, to use this gift, not to flatter people, but to build them up, not to seek favor from others, but to, to simply honor God with the gift that he's given you. That kind of encourager is someone who's actually a powerful weapon in the hands of God and someone who brings honor and credit to Jesus who gives that gift. Now, again, that's just one example. The list could go on. There are different kinds of gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. And I'm not even sure that any of the lists in the New Testament are totally comprehensive. Uh, as far as the different kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives. But there are lots of options for gifts. There's not the option, if you trust in Jesus, to believe that you don't have a gift. Because believing that is actually saying that Jesus isn't a good gift giver. And that's just not true. He's a good gift giver. He loves to give gifts to his followers, to his students, to his disciples. And our God is a good Father. So if you are struggling today and feeling like you don't know what your gift is, you don't know what your role is, you don't know what your place is in the world, ask God to help you in prayer, but also ask the community of faith, other believers to come alongside you and to help you to discern your gifts, not just so that you can feel better about yourself, although that's good, but also so that you can give the credit and honor to Jesus for the things that he's given you. So, the ascension gives us kind of a heavenly perspective we've seen, both when we fail, right, and when we flourish. Finally, I want us to look at verses 9 through 11 again together and see that because of the ascension of Jesus, you can serve God at all times with hope. These verses, 9 through 11, record the actual ascension event for us, and I want us to kind of put our imagination caps on for a moment I had a friend in Charlotte who liked to say, let's imaginatively inhabit this passage. I think that's fun language. So you don't have to close your eyes. You can if you want to. But, but actually try to picture what it would have been like to be in the shoes of the disciples as Jesus is rising into heaven until the point when a cloud takes him from their sight. You know, that cloud is, is a picture of the glory of God. Just like in the Old Testament, God's glory was displayed in a visible way when, when a cloud descended upon the tabernacle or the temple, the place of God's special presence. But Jesus disappearing behind that glory cloud is a communication to the disciples and to us that that would be the last time he would show up in his body on the earth until he comes again to make all things new. The resurrection appearances of our Lord have ended. Now, if that's true, think with me for a moment about how these original disciples would have felt. When I read this, there's a part of me that feels kind of dumbfounded, kind of like I think they probably did. What do we do now? 
Jesus is gone. And that's why it's such a good thing, not only that Jesus sent his spirit to be his presence with us until the end of the age, but also he sent these angels to his friends and recorded their words for you and for me. Uh, These men in white linen in our passage are angels, and they have a message from heaven. If you knew someone was coming to you with a message from heaven, would you want to hear it? Well, these angels wake up the disciples from their stupor, and they tell them basically two things. First, they say, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which is maybe an indirect angelic way to say, like, get moving, get going. And second, they say, Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Or more simply, Jesus is coming back. The first statement, get moving, is an encouragement to serve. And the second statement, Jesus is coming back, gives us hope. And just like the disciples, we actually need to hear both aspects of this message. Uh, Because when we do, it can be a kind of spiritual sword that we can use to slay or destroy or conquer these sins and idols that are often showing up in our hearts and our lives. Because there will be times, I believe, when you'll feel tempted to shirk or throw off your responsibilities. You know, whether that's at home, mom and dad ask you to do your chores and it just sounds a whole lot more fun to play video games, or whether that's at work or in the church. And this this is arising from, from a heart problem that the Bible often calls sloth. Or we could, we could think of it not just as physical laziness, although that's a part of it, wanting to kind of sit on the couch all day, but maybe more seriously, it's spiritual laziness. And this spiritual laziness is a problem for us. It keeps showing up because serving Jesus is hard. It takes effort. It takes thoughtfulness and laziness, kind of sitting back on our laurels. That promises us a kind of comfort if we indulge it we think we'll find some kind of satisfaction. But really, spiritual laziness is kind of like uh, a meal at a fast food restaurant. Now, I'm not condemning fast food. Amanda and I had Culver's this past week, and it was pretty great. But what, what, what's true about fast food often the time, often, often of the times? It, it, it might bring us some kind of comfort in the short term, But very often, we don't feel that great after a meal at Culver's afterwards, right? Serving Jesus, on the other hand, is like a a meaty steak dinner. It takes work. It takes preparation. It takes effort. But the end result is satisfaction. So we need to hear the angel's admonition, their, their encouragement to get moving, because Jesus has given us a task. And I don't know all the life contexts in the room, but if you're a believer, Jesus has called you to participate in some way with his mission to reclaim sinners, just like Aslan came to reclaim Narnia. He's called you to show with the way you love people, but also to speak with your words about Jesus who lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't, and who died the death that we deserve to die. And more than that, 
as our passage says, who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to secure our place with God. So we must resist laziness with all our might because the Lord resurrected. He ascended, and his ascension means he's coming again. That coming back is as certain as his going away. That's what the angels tell us. And if we're honest, this return is something that should actually be a little daunting to us. It's more than that, but it's something that should strike us. It shouldn't leave us in a position where we can sit back comfortably. And I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I'll be the first to admit that I struggle at times to participate in the mission as Jesus has called me to. But even though I'm not trying to guilt you, I want to challenge you and, and maybe even ask you, when was the last time that you prayed for an unbelieving friend or gave to a missionary or asked a thoughtful question to engage a family member or friend about the things of God? You know, you're not necessarily sinning if you don't talk about Jesus with a stranger every day, right? But God has called us to this task and Jesus is coming again. And, and the Bible says that he'll hold us accountable for the ways that we stewarded his gifts. And that can be daunting. But it's also, and maybe even more so, a great comfort to us, which protects us not just from sloth or spiritual laziness, but from kind of the other side of the coin, the, the twin evil of work idolatry. Laziness offers us comfort It says you can sit back and do what you want. Work idolatry, on the other hand, work worship, offers us a sense of worthiness or success or acceptance. It says you can work hard and make your way in the world. You can make a name for yourself. Now, whether you're a professor or a student or an engineer or a stay-at-home mom or a waiter, or a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever God has called you to, this is something that we all struggle with in one way or another because at the heart of work idolatry is the belief, the assumption, the the operating principle that we can earn love and acceptance and status through what we do. In other words, work idolatry says it's all on me. But the ascension of Jesus and the promised coming of our Lord reminds us, it's not all on you. I don't know if any of you feel tired or fatigued this morning from living a life driven by that belief that it's all on you. But it's not. The victory has already been won. Jesus has ascended to the Father And because that's true, you can actually receive by faith, by trusting in Jesus, a greater status, a greater name, a greater acceptance than anything that you could ever earn by your own work or smarts or worthiness. God has given you by grace, if you're a believer in Jesus today, he's given you by grace the same name that belongs to Jesus by nature. By nature, Jesus is God's beloved son. And if you're trusting in Jesus today, that's what God calls you, his beloved child. 
We're not in heaven yet. We still live in a time when uh, glasses break and our Birkenstocks get soaked in sticky liquid. We still live in a time when the kingdom has not come in full. We still live in a time with our own sin-stained hearts and sin-stained spouses and sin-stained friends in our sin-stained world. I mean, turn on the news. It's all over. But even though all of that's true, and it is sad, and we should feel the weight of that, what is ultimately true is that Jesus is seated in heaven. And from his throne, he's still at work in your sin-stained heart, even if you're feeling a little bored right now. And hey, I'm not offended, I've been there. He's still at work in your sin-stained spouse, even if y'all got on a fight uh, on the way to church this morning. I've been there too. He's still at work when you see your child wandering from the faith. That's not a sign that Jesus has stepped off the throne. He's still at work when your feeling of loneliness persists far longer than what you thought. Because Jesus ascending to the Father secures your access to him, your presence with him forever. He's still at work. His ascension proves that. And I just want to say one final word to those of you that are maybe exploring Christianity today or aren't sure if you're a Christian or not. It's so easy in our culture to believe. Even if we have some conception of God and who he is, it's so easy to believe that he's not really involved in our lives, that he doesn't really have an interest in us. But the ascension of Jesus proves that that's not true. Because a human being like you has been brought to the throne room of heaven. And that's proof from God that he has an interest in bringing human beings like Jesus into his presence. Now, if you trust in Jesus, the throne room of heaven is a place of bliss. Because you have Jesus as your friend and your king and your advocate. If you don't know Jesus, the throne room of heaven is actually a scary place. It's a place of judgment. So if you're exploring Christianity, if if you're exploring who Jesus is today, I I want to remind you of that and challenge you. God is interested in your life. He's involved. let's, Let's keep the conversation going. Well, for all of us, it's hard to live and serve in this tension between Christ's first and second comings because we still feel the sting and the weight of our failures and we still struggle to be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. We still have to fight to avoid both laziness and work idolatry or work worship. But, and this is what I hope we'll continue to see throughout this series, the ascension of Jesus makes all the difference because the king is on the throne. He gives good gifts to those who trust in him. He died, he rose, he, he ascended into heaven, and he's coming again. Because of the ascension, you can be a faithful witness to Jesus until the kingdom comes in full. Please pray with me. Father, you've been faithful to speak to us today. I ask that even as we dwell on your word to us later this afternoon and throughout this week that 
we would continue to delight in and meditate upon and be moved by the ascension of our Lord Jesus. God, we have the unique privilege of worshiping you now. And we sang earlier that the day is coming when every knee will bow, that every knee will bow and praise God, all creatures of our God and King. We long for that day, and I pray that you would help each of us, whether we're seeking to know who you are for the first time or have been following you for decades, help us to honor you by submitting to the King and by living a life for his glory. We ask that you would do this for Christ's sake, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.